Welcome to the Off Street Podcast featuring Adam Reiner and Sean Dan. Off Street contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and contains certain forward-looking statements of future possibilities that due to known and unknown risks and other uncertainties and factors may differ materially from actual results. As such, there is no guarantee that any views and opinions expressed herein will come to pass. Off Street is presented for informational purposes and nothing contained herein should be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell any security or as an offer to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. Additionally, this communication contains information derived from third-party sources. Although we believe these sources to be reliable, we make no representations as to their accuracy or completeness. Adam and Sean are employees of Marshall Financial Group, Inc., a registered investment advisor. For additional information about the firm, including its services and fees, send for the firm's disclosure brochure or visit advisorinfo.sec.gov. All right, Sean, it is Wednesday, August 30th, 11 a.m., episode 20 our most challenging episode yet. <laughs> <laughs> only they knew how the sausage was made, Adam. Well, a lot of takes here on episode 20. <laughs> we've been we've been messing a little bit with our audio setup and if it if it hasn't been one thing it's been another. It's not our full-time job to do a do a podcast. So after today I feel like we need a producer. <laughs> we we may we may very well need. This may be the straw that breaks camel's back, but we persevere nonetheless. It's episode 20. It's a milestone episode. Huge episode. Big news. We also have big news. The Off Street podcast will be hitting the road for any of our West Coast listeners. We will be out in Phoenix, Arizona, the end of September, the 27th to the 29th, for the FPA annual conference, Financial Planning Association. Uh, we'll be there as part of their podcast corner experience. So us and five other podcasts will be there meeting people we're going to record a podcast out there and and hopefully have a guest as well Thus, sit in some of the tinkering we've been doing for this episode yes the the, <laughs> the the impetus for the tinkering has been trying to prepare for having a guest so something to look out for and if you're part of fpa if you're out in phoenix definitely let us know we're excited to go out exciting news off street will be going on site here we go <laughs> put it on a banner and speaking of off-site or on-site, Jay Powell was in Jackson Hole last week, highly anticipated speech that he made, and in the end, not much new was learned. Long story short, the threat of more tightening, but not the promise, sharp contrast to the speech last year, where he seemed angry that the bond market was not getting the Fed's message. This year, it seems like market has the message that yes. will keep rates high for as long as they need to to bring inflation back in the the tone was definitely much different i think we had a greater than three percent down day last year we looked at some of the direct quotes he said forceful and rapid steps use the word pain pain the uh, words unfortunate costs like you said last year was a promise for hikes this year was the threat or potential much much different messaging very different one of the things the fed will be looking and as they decide when or whether to raise again will be the labor market. Having been lucky enough now to record this on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday, we got a little bit of an appetizer to Friday's jobs number yesterday with the jolts data, so job job openings. And it showed that the the labor market is is slowing. So the the Fed is achieving its goal in, in that regard. We're down to only about eight million, eight and a half million job openings in the US. So but there does seem to be a, a clear trend in the deceleration of of job openings and even the quits rate for yeah. that matter. 
we've talked a lot about normalization the past several episodes through different parts of the economy and market. Hopefully this is just some normalization in the job market, the labor market, much needed. It's been very tight. Yeah, I couldn't help but think of the Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm GIF or GIF, depending on how you pronounce it. Oh, <laughs> um, when he goes, pretty, pretty good. I think that's the way the it's, Fed probably yeah. feels after this, that yesterday's number, hopefully after Friday's print as well. The job market, they described it in the Wall Street Journal this morning as cooling, but far from freezing, which I think is is, is a good way to put it. Moderation. It's all, all positive stuff, it seems. Yeah, all positive. Fed was one of the major market events last week, at least that Jackson Hole speech. The other highly anticipated earnings from NVIDIA. And for the most part, they delivered, but the stock did not behave probably the way most people who are long would have hoped. Yeah, very frustrating for shareholders. They crushed earnings Wednesday after the market closed. Stock initially popped after hours, but then sold off Thursday, Friday to the point where it finished the week below where it entered earnings. And it's just one of those unfortunate things with high flying stocks with high PEs. It's important to understand it's a lot of good news is usually priced in. Didn't it feel a bit like that old old quip of buy the rumor, sell the news? Definitely. Like it's no secret at this point. People want to be in NVIDIA. Everyone knows about AI. Everyone's seen the stock run up this year. Creates a demand for that stock. And just because you think it's a great company doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be a great stock. It's something that you, you have to be able to appreciate when you buy into a stock when it's 50 plus times earnings. I think, I think that's an important point that that run up in those PEs was forward share price growth getting pulled forward in anticipation that they would realize those earnings. So now that they, they realize them, now they are started to realize them anyway. Now they need to continue to do that to justify the current share price at that multiple. Definitely. When you buy a stock with good news baked in, you then need great news in the future. Just meeting expectations is not going to cut it. Even beating it slightly is not. You need to far surpass them. So you really create a super, super high bar to clear with a high multiple stock like that. I think it's a very different company, but Tesla since the mid 2010s, it seems like has had that struggle of a lot of people like the company, but it's just the multiples and the, the expense that you're buying that stock at, it can be hard to stomach sometimes and you can get big swings because of it. And a high growth stock like NVIDIA, even using NVIDIA's own history that it has in the past, even recent past, been prone to these, these run-ups in PEs and then things will come back in line for a little bit and then share price correction one way or the other, driven by whatever news it is. Um, I'm going to read you a headline, Sean. Try to guess what year this was written. I'll give you a hint. It's not 2023. I wouldn't have been asking. <laughs> Buy NVIDIA because its chips will dominate the artificial intelligence market. So you said 2023 would be too obvious. I would think even the past few years would be too obvious. This, this feels like a, a headline that could have come out maybe 10 years ago at just anticipating an AI boom. So I'll go like somewhere within 10 years. This was written on October 23rd, 2017. Yeah. So it's not new. The AI thing's not new for NVIDIA. I, I think at the time, NVIDIA was going transition from gaming. I think Bitcoin at the time was starting to run. Artificial intelligence was starting to become a thing. So in the end, this year, it's, the headline is right. It's just the time, time to get there. It underscores, we talked about a lot, the passive versus active debate. It's really hard to pick stocks 
it's incredibly frustrating when you technically get it right and you pick the company that beats earnings and then the share price somehow goes down. Always frustrating, which is a good segue to an article that was written by Bloomberg last week called Stock Pickers Never Had a Chance Against Hard Math of the Market. Why don't you break it down? Yeah, great article. Underscores how so far this year, we've had great market performance overall in the S&P 500, but we've been led by such a concentrated or select few number of stocks. It becomes really hard to outperform unless you were overweight a select few. If you're anywhere else, it becomes tough. So they talked about through the first half of the year, 70% of the stocks in the S&P 500 actually underperformed the overall aggregate index. Pretty big number. It's a pretty big number. And it's this idea of skewness. It's There's a skew to the market where there's a few high flyers that do most of the heavy lifting. Which to that point, there was an interesting part of this article and in the study that said gains in just 72 companies have accounted for nearly half of all net wealth creation from stocks relative to treasury bills since 1926. In other words, the market has been pretty narrow. It is tough too, as, as a manager in a year like this, where it's been the obvious names that have let us hire. It's been the Apples, NVIDIA's, Tesla's, the top 10 stocks. If you're a manager, you've talked about it a bunch. You don't necessarily want to be heavy those because then you are accused of being a closet indexer. You're accused of- What are you doing to earn your active management fee? Exactly. Like, obviously, people like Apple, we want to hear about the 400th largest in the index chip maker in Europe that no one's heard of. Like, let's catch the next. People want the, the next NVIDIA before it's NVIDIA. Exactly. Exactly. I think the the writer of the article had a good way of looking at it. In this passive-active debate, it's not like active managers are stupid or doing anything wrong. It's just by the nature of how the market moves, it's really, really hard to outperform when you kind of have to be in a very exact position to do it. Yeah, I think no one's going to get ex- – or few people would get excited about an active manager who owns 20% Apple or – pick another one, Amazon, when the index is 10. Like people people want price discovery. They want those hidden gems like you talked about. That's what they think of when they think of active management and stock selection. Yeah. When someone asks you for a stock pick at a party, which as soon as you sell, tell, tell someone you're in finance, they want that. We obviously never give that, but they don't want to hear the obvious names. They want to hear those undercover names. And then also you talked about being 20% Apple. These active managers also usually have bounds. They can only get so concentrated in one stock where it it's hard to overweight those names when they already make up so much of the index. So you really have your hands tied as an active manager. And at the end of the article, there was a quote from a professor at the University of Notre Dame. To summarize, what they had said was, managers need to have concentrated portfolios and have a lot of conviction and courage. It's a hard game for active managers. And the passive active debate will continue to rage on for decades to come, but all adds up to why it seems like the move is passive. It's just really, really hard to be an active manager, especially today. And also shout out Dean Kremers, go Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Big win against Navy. Huge win. Huge win. I'm kind of an easy opponent to start the season. Hey, I don't know. You know, midshipmen are a tough team. Triple option offense. Okay. Old school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think. but yes tests tests are still to come 
in the spirit of of jobs week here for the market there was a yougov article that came out last week and it's just one of those that always confounds me maybe it's just because we pay attention to the market so much we have a good pulse of what's going on in the economy compared to the average person but the takeaway from this article was few americans are aware of growth in the number of u.s jobs so i'll just run through some of the highlights in here six in ten regard unemployment as a very or somewhat serious national problem that was probably the most surprising one because it's not no not even close and just 24 percent say the jobless rate dropped last month and only 34 percent say the number of jobs is increasing so all missing the mark in in their own unique way just the first one that you said, 60% thinking unemployment's being a problem. Unemployment is what? At 50 plus year lows right now? We are sitting at probably the right around the lowest unemployment rates since the late 1960s. Yeah. Which is pretty startling when you think of some of the economies that we've had. Just think of the big bull run from the 80s through the 90s. Sure. It's a, I mean, it's a great time to be looking for a job in America. We talked about the jobs, the the job openings number coming down at the start of the episode. There are still 1.5 job openings for every unemployed person in America. I mean, it's you you still have the leverage. It seems like if if you're looking for a job, so just kind of kind of surprising that so many Americans view the labor market as weak when it's actually near just about historically strong. We we talked about the disconnect here. And there was some debate online. Is this a critique against the media for pushing negative narratives? Or is it on kind of us, the consumer, the citizen reading the news for being drawn to the negative headlines and giving those negative headlines the clicks? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Doing probably both. You probably throw social media in there as well. Social media, yeah. The, the negativity is what usually gets play. And it does make sense. We come in in the morning. We do our channel checks on Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. The things I tend to look at first are the red flag things. What What is there to worry about today? What is the negative headlines? So yeah, I definitely give my clicks to that. I'm sure you and, and most other people do as well. Oh, isn't, that, isn't that just a funny contrast that in an industry where you've typically been rewarded for being optimistic, just stocks go up 70, 80% of the time, that it's still so driven by fear. It it is interesting. What do you what do you call yourself? A realist? From, from yeah, a realist. A realist. It's I, neither bullish nor bearish. I think that's I think that's a good way to put it. With your retirement nest egg and being people in this financial industry trying to help people in, invest their money and, and safeguard it for the future, I think your job is to be somewhat cynical and realist, borderline pessimist. We're we're trying to sniff out the red flags. What can get in our way? We accept maybe that positive news is there and we should be optimistic for the long term. But in the short term, you're always kind of trying to sniff out what is that next crisis? What should we be trying to avoid? I don't know if it's part of human nature, just Probably. built in in humans. Yeah. Some evolutionary thing there. Of, it's like fight or flight. Yeah. The person most scared of the lions back in the Neanderthal times was the most <laughs> likely to survive. So it was passed down point. to us. But I think it's a good way to gut check yourself of if you feel like you're drowning in negative news. Maybe just take a step back and say, is is this worth worrying about? Let's separate the signal from the noise. I wonder how many anchor points were created last year when the overwhelming narrative was the U.S. is about en- yeah. about to enter recession. Definitely. And it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Like even some of the real-time 
GDP estimates for the current quarter, Q3, look pretty good. And it doesn't seem like we're going to start a recession this quarter either. Just talking casually with with friends and family who aren't super in tune with the market, that is a common sentiment I get of, aren't we supposed to be in a recession? Are we in a recession right now? And I think it is that lag of you get peppered with it. And then that sits in your mind. They even said in the article, 66% of Americans think we are currently in or at least somewhat likely to enter a recession in the next 12 months. Meanwhile, every economist is now on the soft landing train. So maybe there is a lag there. Maybe it's just negative news is what gets the clicks. But I thought it was a fascinating article, maybe my favorite of the week. Yeah, I think it was a great one. So for the jobs number on Friday, consensus estimate is somewhere around 170,000, 180,000 gains in the non-farm payroll number for the month of July. While it'll be a low number compared to the the post-average gains that we've gotten or seen, the average from 2010 through 2019 is only about 180,000. So it just comes back in line with that pre-COVID COVID average. Yeah. So while the headlines may say it's slowing, it's just a return to the pre-COVID norms. One of the Fed's goals, or I guess the Fed's goals of raising interest rates, the tamp down inflation was cool down the labor market a little bit, take out speculation. Maybe it's starting to work. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal titled, Thought You Saved $60 on That Vacuum Cleaner? Think again. And this has to do with promotional pricing, which didn't really exist much in 21 when stores, businesses had trouble keeping inventory. And now that spending has shifted in the economy more from goods back to services, discounts and promotions are back. But a deal may not always be a deal, Sean. This says a large number of retailers face legal challenges for allegedly deceiving consumers by tagging products as being on sale, even though their prices weren't always discounted. When I read this article, even though this company wasn't listed, Kohl's, I immediately thought of them. I always like to joke and say Kohl's has been on sale since the day they opened. You cannot walk into that store without seeing a sale sign somewhere. Everything's on sale. But that's that's one of the examples that they give is the idea of a shirt that is listed as 50% off for $20. And that gets consumers excited thinking they get a deal of like, oh, a consumer in the past has paid 40 I can get it for 20 Whereas in reality, some stores do that and never even list the product for $40. It's just always been a $20 shirt, but they create the illusion of the deal. Yes, it's about tapping into consumer emotion, triggering urgency to get them to make a purchase that they otherwise wouldn't have made. It works. It works. It works. There's a, they talk about a lawsuit in here. There's a woman in Oregon who is suing Eddie Bauer for this exact practice. She brought a few items that were listed as being on sale. She came to find they never actually sold for that initial list price. She felt deceived, felt wronged. And uh, they're allowing the case to move forward. So that will go to court. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. Just thinking of the retail sales number that we got, that we saw a few weeks ago, they included the Prime Day sales captured in there. They, they list Amazon in this article saying that there was a seller on Amazon who was selling what was normally a $115 vacuum cleaner. Though for a two-day period in 2017, 
they marked it up to $250 and then listed it as on sale for $190. Then after this sale period ended, they just marked it back at its normal price of $115. So this guy's like 40, 50% price increase as actually a sale. Yes, kind of crazy. Amazon in the article says they have since introduced mechanisms to detect and prevent that, but a deal may not always be a deal. It's tough because I know people were trying to sniff that on Prime Day too. They were trying to find products where it was listed as maybe a 50% off Prime Day deal, but someone had a screenshot of two days before it was listed for that exact same price. So another reason, I guess, of kind of resist the urge for like always assuming a sale is a good deal, find out like what is this actually worth to you and, and kind of go based off of that rather than is it a deal. So if that talks about spending on goods, here's another one that ties into what I would call services. And this would be healthcare services. And just for context, healthcare spending in the United States, according to the government, during the fiscal year 2021, was about $4.3 trillion. Crazy. Or about a little more than $12,900 per person, and represented about 18.3% of GDP, which is just a Startling number. Shocking. Shocking. And this is wealthy people are getting full body scans, early detection or unnecessary, and TLDR. People are getting MRIs, not through their primary care, but just through companies that do them. There's a way of early detection, I guess, right? Yeah, peace of mind. It was uh, popularized, I think, recently by Kim Kardashian very publicly did this. And so now it's kind of out there and, and people are realizing it's a thing. Yeah. Driven a little by fear of mortality. Fear of mortality. But like you said, it's, it's preventative. It's not covered by insurance. So people are paying out of pocket to do these full body MRIs. Costs about $650 to several thousand dollars per scan. And it's interesting because when you say in the context of total spend on healthcare and total spend per person, my initial reaction is one, how has this not always been a thing? And two, Yes, that feels very worth it to spend a couple thousand dollars for that peace of mind every couple of years. But interestingly enough, in the article, most doctor groups are actually against this. Yes, the, the American College of Preventative Medicine, I believe they said, recommends against it. They said it's inefficient, puts a strain on their radiologists and on their equipment, often will flag what they call incidental lomas, which are maybe it flags something benign in your body, but you have to deal with that anxiety about it and have to go get further testing, which further costs more money, puts more strain on healthcare. And so they're fully against this and say it it doesn't really serve a, a huge purpose, a great purpose. I could see the argument that it puts more strain on healthcare, but the additional out-of-pocket costs, knowing the people who are probably getting these, one, they probably have insurance or good insurance. And they're probably not worried about those co-pays or other out-of-pocket costs they may have they want the peace of mind that's why they got the scan in the first place i think even in the article they meant they talk about a nurse or a doctor who had got this scan done and i think they said they were on vacation with their family they opened the report they thought it was just going to be benign not a lot in there turned out they had a brain tumor that they were able to treat pretty early yep but i don't know i would do this i know all it takes is one story like that yeah you could tell me 999 other people out of a thousand had clean 
reports, but stuff like that that you worry about. And you hear that and you say, well, what's a couple thousand dollars if it if it can save someone's life like that? So be very interesting to see if this becomes more mainstream. I, I could definitely see it happening. You know, tying this back to the NVIDIA conversation, growth of AI, you just think of some of those sci-fi movies where people get into a pod, yeah. they receive like a body scan, yeah. and they just get treatment right then and there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the way it's going. Not to be a futurist, but... Hey, it makes sense. Maybe, uh, yeah, if you can get some AI radiologists, take some of the strain away from them, maybe even make it more affordable, more accessible to people. So very interesting. I makes you think we we had a lot of interesting discussion in the office about it throughout the week for sure do you have anything else on your list sean or do you want to go into uncorrelated um i think i'm good with with going uncorrelated all right we have since these uncorrelated topics are usually theme-based we'll call this labor and workplace yes again it's a jobs week so yeah, going with the jobs week yeah so it's got to be a theme so props to us for this one I believe we were both here this day. More people call in sick on August 24th than any other day. This is a Bloomberg article. The second sickest day of the year falls after Super Bowl Sunday. I believe they said it was February 14th or February 13th, which is right around the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day. So they said obvious reasons why. But August 14th, just kind of a random day. Part of me wants to say, well, there's 365 days in a year. There has to be one day. That's the most popular sick day. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but August 24th feels so random to me. It's not cold and flu season. It's not allergy season. It's not the dead of summer. Like what? It, well, I have a theory on this. It's people panicking because summer is coming to an end. Okay. And they're trying to squeeze one last day. In Interesting. A before, panic. before the days get shorter, schedules get chaotic, school starting, youth sports. People are just trying to hang on to summer, which some would say is the best season of the year. <laughs> so like a panic beach trip, you play hooky from, from work one day. Yes, this, this was a study done by Flamingo, which is a firm that helps companies manage employee absences and medical leaves. That was a, happened over the course of five years. There were some 300 businesses involved in this study, but they also cite the number one reason that people gave when calling out. Can you guess? It was within the past few years. Is it COVID? It was not COVID. It was the stomach bug. Oof. More than half the time, that was the reason yeah. people gave for calling out sick. It's a good excuse. It's a great excuse. No one, no one wants someone with a stomach bug around. No. Keep that in your household. Don't bring it into the office and get us all, all sick. This next story from the Wall Street Journal was tailor-made for our George Evans, who is the ringleader of the MFG Walkers group. And this is about the CIA. The CIA runs an annual pedometer challenge, but they have to do it with a twist because they are a sensitive facility, Sean. You just can't go in there with a Fitbit or Apple Watch. So as part of their walking challenge, they have to use analog pedometers. Oh, that's cool. This year's theme, I think they have a theme around their walking challenge every year was classic rock bands, I believe. Yes, I think it was Battle of the Bands. Battle of the Bands. They had 400, 457 teams of 10, but everyone had to have a Battle of the Bands uh, name theme. So the CIA does this as a teams-based challenge, and some of these team names are great. Led Steppelin was one. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Red Hot Chili Steppers was another. And they do this similar for a similar reason why we do it. It's promoting the workforce's physical and mental health, even building on team collaboration, which I think there's plenty of studies out there that show people who are active are healthier. They call out less frequently from work. Um, they're more engaged. And I, th- I think it's a great thing to do. Oh, yeah. Especially if you, ha- you add the health aspect to it. And it definitely makes sense reading through the article they talk about kind of the trash talk that would happen, a lot more collaboration, talking to people across the office, people within teams would try and tempt each other to take more steps, they'd offer to bring in homemade food and stuff. But pretty shocking, it says with about 4,000 participants, the CIA took about just under 1.2 billion steps over a four-week period. Which is crazy. It's a lot. It's a lot, a lot. The, the top team of 10 took just over 7.5 million steps in total over the four-week period. We may have to do the conversion from steps to miles. I know, because it comes out to between 20 and 30,000 steps per day per person, if you assume it was exactly 28 days, which is a lot of steps, a lot, a lot of steps. George would know. Yes. The conversion there. (laughs) Yes, he is our official tracker. But I think you brought up the point. We may have to talk George into making ours team based. I think I think the competitive aspect could help because I know each year March Madness is always super fun. We do a bracket challenge, and that gets a lot of that kind of friendly trash talk and collaboration throughout the office. We have fantasy football that's about to start up. That's always fun as well. But anything like that, I feel like if you can add a competitive edge, it gets people that much more amped up for it. Oh yeah, there was a person that they quoted in the article that said they were so dedicated to counting every last step, they wouldn't leave their bed at night to use the bathroom without carrying their pedometer. That's an Adam. That that, that would have been me. (laughs) If we're doing it, we're doing it all the way. (laughs) Very gritty, but very, yes, very Adam Reiner. And to help George know he's not alone, one of the people, I guess, who organizes the event, or one of the team captains said, some of the team members think I pressure them, I don't think I do. From year to year, we have lost members. <laughs> I had to read it twice. I thought maybe George was being quoted in this article. Hey, you got to keep people on. You got to keep people engaged. Yeah, you have to keep them engaged and accountable for their miles, Sean. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Any parting thoughts? Nothing huge. I think we talked about it last week. Pretty much through earnings season. We have Jackson Hole behind us. Focus in, in, in the kind of short to intermediate term here will probably be on the macro releases. There's a big response to Jolts yesterday. We'll see how we react to to payrolls on Friday. But um positive to see. It looks like we got a little bit of momentum back in the market after a rough start to August. Yeah, not not a surprise as we've seen rates come back down. We've seen equities kind of boost back up a little bit on that news. But I know there's a PCE number tomorrow, but it really feels like it's the jobs number. That's the most important thing this week. And for the Fed going forward, don't want to go all the way out there and say, if it's a good print, maybe we're at a point of transition in the market, but it certainly feels like we're getting close, that the labor market has cooled. The Fed is maybe going to start to feel more confident that the rates are, are working and it might force them to make a decision. Do they raise further or do they just leave rates where they're at? They can't wait till the data gets to where they yeah, want it. Definitely not. Before they they change 
course of policy. Yeah. At that point, it'll be too late, which Powell had even acknowledged in July during his comments that they're not going to keep hiking until inflation gets down to 2%. They're going to have to stop before then. It's always a guessing game with the Fed, really, with these interest rate decisions, but especially now as we have kind of conflicting messages or getting towards peak rates, we understand and appreciate monetary poly work, policy works on such a lag. It starts to it starts to get tough here. It becomes almost more art than science. How do how do we massage this? How do we message? How do we deal with rate moves in the future? So I think it's in some ways it's just going to start to get really tough for the Fed, despite how much work they've already done. We had talked about it before. It's more of a chisel now than a sledgehammer like they used last year. And maybe just quote that stock pickers article. The Fed is gonna reach a point where they just need to have courage and conviction in in the policy now. Until next week. Until next week. See you then.